0: you mm-hmm.
1: I'm Charlie Rossiter and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is David Watts from San Francisco. He's trained as a classical musician. He's done TV producing. He's a commentator on NPR. He happens to be a clinical professor of medicine at the U of California San Francisco and most importantly for us he is an award-winning poet with a number of books too many for me to list but he'll mention them as we converse. And we can thank Jenny Chi for suggesting that he and I get together. She thought we would enjoy talking to each other and we can tell we will. So David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And you know, before we went on casting around for where to start, you mentioned dealing with the unconscious and how you've kind of seriously looked into that in terms of poetry. And tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, in my case, I was writing, I guess you would call it lyrical poetry. It had a sort of thematic element to it, uh, a predictable series of uh, events within it, almost like telling a little story. And I was having fun with that. I was um, writing some things that I enjoyed. It had a rather therapeutic effect on my consciousness to be able to write these things down and address some of the issues that, you know, psychologically we should be addressing in our lives but there was still something missing about it. Um, I was looking for, I think I would call it wildness, um, something that is not predictable, but connected, if that makes sense to you. In other words, you don't expect it, but when it comes, you see that there is something that makes it part of what you've just been talking about. And that kind of connection, which is not uh, linear thinking, Mm -hmm. right? The conscious mind usually works on a linear basis. That's how we get through the day and pay our taxes and make our appointments and make a productive life out of our existence. Yeah. That's the, the <clears throat> lateral prefrontal cortex of the brain driving us through the day. I didn't know much about the DLPFC at that time. I just wanted to get wildness in my poetry. And so what I started doing, something about The whole idea made me think that if I was writing half asleep, that this daytime brain function of linear thinking would be intimidated enough not to be dominant. And it turned out that if I was writing falling asleep by the fireside late at night, or better yet, waking up, half waking up, I would say, at three o'clock in the morning, writing without looking at what you're writing, without turning on a light to wake up your wife next to you, et cetera, that when you look at it in the morning, you will have a completely different kind of productivity. Those words that come together in very unique and crazy kinds of ways are very interesting. At first I thought, okay, this is, is, nobody's gonna read that. But then the more I I kept doing it, and the more I came back to these poems that came out, and by the way they come out very quickly. You don't there's no editing, and when they come out they're done, which after all is a characteristic of the unconscious, because the unconscious doesn't go so much by linear as it as it does by leaping, and it makes associations that do not have connections between them that are obvious but are connected. Mm-hmm. And that's what was happening in the poetry. And so I'd read these things and they would grow on me over time. And I would like them a lot. And I started collecting them. And when I would do poetry readings, occasionally I would throw in one of these poems. And the audience was usually very quiet after the reading of this poem. And I thought, "Huh, it's not getting across. People aren't understanding. Turns out those were the poems that they often remembered the most. And they, afterwards, <laughs> when they come up, they'd say, I really like that poem, blah, blah, blah. And what I was discovering was that while I was afraid that my unconscious was not going to be the same as somebody else's unconscious, actually there must be connected. This oh. common commonality of unconscious thinking, maybe. I don't know for sure. This is a kind of an unknown area.
1: Whoa. We're sneaking up I, on young now.
2: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I didn't know about that. That's what I, you're making
1: but. me think of anyway.
2: Wow. And so what I ended up doing was um, developing a name for this poetry that I was writing. That is to say a pseudonym, Harvey Ellis. Harvey is my father's first name. Ellis is my mother's maiden name. I thought I would do honor mm. <laughs> or disrespect, it depends. <laughs> by the production of this work and and since then time what I've learned is that people like it they may not understand it I don't understand it but it does something you know it makes Mm -hmm. connections and I have now two collections that have been published of this of this work and what I can do is I can I can read you a poem that I write in my usual voice and alongside it read a poem that I write in this other voice and you can hear the difference, shall I? Great idea,
1: absolutely.
2: All right, so um, this is a poem called uh, The Body of My Brother. It is dedicated to my brother who died young and I tried to write this poem for a long time and I couldn't write it until I saw somebody else's poem, Bill Matthews poem about his father who was dead. And he used the body of his father as a way of writing about his father in an emotional sense, that is to ascribe to the body certain characteristics that allowed him to write something that was heavily emotional without having the paralysis that occurs when you try to do that. So this mechanism worked and I wrote this, but this was in my, my regular voice, the body of my brother. First it belonged to my mother or seemed to stuffed into her like a foot in a sock. Then it took care of itself filling out into home runs high jumps. There were times it must have been afraid hiding in a bunker in South Vietnam having happened to it whatever it was that makes bodies years later jump out of bed in the middle of the night not awake sweating and shouting. Last time I saw it, it was older than mine, thinned out by too many cigarettes and favors given. Now they've taken it from the hospital bed where it gasped out his last punchline and put it in a box that no one will ever see again. Though we stand around it, observing gestures even death cannot remove, head tilt, wry smile, hands the same as my hands crossed over his chest as they never were in life. A few pictures and mementos scattered around it as if they were crumbs of a happy life. So that's written in my David Watts voice and here comes Harvey Ellis on the same subject. Missing Bill. Your arrival was speckled with departure, the way air is folded into stone. Now the light in the room is like coffee and the places you have left in the wall keep changing. October will come again and go before your dark eyes land on me. See how the full moon startles the darkness on the floor by the window. It will pass over us whether we see it or not. Your patience is enormous and has wings. This may come as a surprise to you, but I don't think so.
1: Mm. That is really interesting. did but, that pretty much come as one thing to you? It didn't go back,
2: just complete, came? Complete as it fell on the page and it was never touched with uh, any kind of revision. And that's characteristic of the Ellis bonds; They come <sighs> fully formed.
1: Wow. I'm I'm really impressed because I actually went through a phase where I thought I'd try to write half awake. Yep, (laughs) but I did not succeed. Very, I did was not able to succeed at that. I I just didn't catch the thing, you know that that half consciousness. Uh, I don't think I don't know what I did wrong or didn't do right, but I was not able to catch it. And I guess I just faded out and stopped doing it. The rule is
2: that the rule is you have to kill the editor. So you put on the page, everything that pops up, you don't think, Mm. well, that doesn't work or where did that come from? Or that's not right. You put it on the page. And so what I would do, I I'd like to describe it this way as I would half awake, dipping into sleep, coming back up, dipping into sleep, coming back up, whatever was in my mind when I came, when I pulled that rope on the bucket out of the well and brought it up, I put on the page I didn't question it. I didn't think about it. Wow. And what happened is it organized itself around its own organizational way of doing things, which is foreign to daytime thinking. This poem, Missing Bill, it doesn't work if you apply linear thinking to it. And yet there's something about it, for me at least, and I think for others as well, that makes connections that you don't realize are there. I mean, this business of his patients being enormous and has wings, what does that mean? Well, it means something, right? Uh, and it makes a connection that we don't come to in that regular life. So I just put it on the page and didn't edit it and yeah. left it to where it was.
1: Well, I'm going to have to go back and try some more. <laughs> Please
2: do. <laughs> I need company in this, <laughs> or,
1: or not try some more. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. let it happen. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. As we were saying, is it, uh, the so, calling it associative poetry reminds me of of Robert Bly's leaping poetry, and I just am so impressed with his poems that really leap, and with what he the poems he put in that book. It's a nice little anthology. Besides being poetics. The books, the poems he chose to put in there, a lot of them from Latin America, which just seems like those guys know how to do it very well.
2: That's exactly uh, the point I was gonna make, is that a lot of these were Spanish poets poets. And he described that leaping of Naruda when he would mm-hmm. go from one subject to another and you wouldn't get the connection. You know, it's it's interesting because in psychiatry, they call that predicate association which means that you don't have a verb in between two images Mm
0: -hmm. and the images
2: make their own connection without the verb. And my wife who was reading these poems, she was saying, these are imagistic poems. That's what these Mm -hmm. are. They work from one image to another, uh, to another. And, And it's interesting. It's really very interesting to me now because last summer I had some kind of epiphany that drove me to suddenly start writing haiku. Now I have never written haiku nor had an interest in writing haiku, <laughs> but I started writing haiku. And when you think about it, haiku is imagistic. Oh yeah. And I think that what happened is that my study of the unconscious by way of Harvey Ellis has prepared me for the writing of haiku because what happened I mean, you know how difficult it is to get published in poetry world, right? You send away these highfalutin journals and you get them back and you send them away and you get them back again. So one in a hundred, maybe you get published. Well, I started sending out haiku and I have to tell you that at the end of a year, I had 81 haiku publications in leading haiku journals throughout the country. And it's, I think it's because of the Harvey Ellis work that had made me prepared in some way. I don't think I'm as good at haiku as I should be yet, but something was happening with this imagistic work that haiku does because they use two images Mm -hmm. in their work and let them interact with each other without forcing the issue. So um, I think they're connected. I think they definitely
1: are interesting. Yeah. Because you sent me some haiku and for, for I wouldn't have guessed that you uh, are relatively new to haiku. Well, thank you. <laughs> cause, cause you're doing it right. <laughs> and so many people who just kind of try haiku somehow miss it, but, uh, but you're focused on the point of the, of the two images. And then they create a, a third something, you know, I had a workshop with Allen Ginsberg and he had a thing. For the workshop and something he always does you know that phrase hydrogen jukebox out of howl and his thing with the workshop was pick a noun and write a whole bunch of paired things with the noun so it might be you know radiator ceiling radiator chair radiator arm and everybody wrote these long lists of things and came out with a lot of Stuff that was just very interesting to hear. I'm not not sure what any of it any of them would necessarily mean, but the kind of thing you're talking about, and it's like that. uh, It's like the the noun gets snuck into a different role.
2: You know, I think that what you just said, not sure what it means, is the point Uh, because we don't necessarily in poetry want meaning; we want an emotional connection. And so the emotions don't operate on a linear thought process of cognitive thinking, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: feeling. So what we want from poetry in general, and I think haiku in particular is feeling, not necessarily a logical process. And so what I thought I would do now, it just occurred to me to do this. You just heard two poems about my brother's death. One in my linear voice, one in my associative voice, And now I'm gonna give you one in my haiku voice.
1: Oh, good. Yes.
2: Remember how short this is. Oh, yeah. Real quick. You might wanna
1: read it twice. They do that at haiku readings.
2: (laughs) In my head, the songs he used to sing, my brother's grave. In my head, the songs he used to sing, my brother's grave. Yeah. No verbs of any consequence there. Mm-hmm.
1: No pure description. It, yep. it, it's a seminar teacher's dream. Show don't tell.
2: That's right.
1: <laughs> haiku is like as as far down the line as you can get on show don't tell.
2: Now it's... I have to expand this side by side connection I have. Okay. To put in uh, the haiku on the other side, don't I? Oh. That'll be good, yeah. Go all three ways. See, I've already learned something from this interview, Charlie. You're terrific.
1: Oh, Oh, whoa. (laughs) Okay, well, if you're having a good time, I'm with you. So I was going to ask you how your path was through the various uh, ways of writing, but you've said it, actually. You started linearly, added in the Ellis voice, and then somehow that got you to haiku, or what you learned there helped you with haiku. Uh-huh. Well, I
2: think that's true. I mean, I um, I came to poetry. I think, as a lot of poets probably do, out of a personal need. I was going through a very difficult time in my life, and I was thinking that I was able to put up with the uh, difficulties that I was being forced to. Uh, that I could do it, you know, that sort of macho feeling sure. guys get sometimes. That's totally wrong. And so, uh, uh, but I was being eroded by this process, I was losing weight. I was um, I was having some difficulty with it. And so I started writing. Uh, this was completely intuitive and nobody told me to write and I didn't have any indication that writing would matter. But I started writing and it wasn't any good in terms of anything that might be published but it seemed to be useful in some way. I think you could characterize it maybe as understanding or maybe as a way of being more content with the life that you're being delivered. Not sure. Something like that. But the writing was helping me do that. Later on, I learned about the work of James Pennebaker, who is down at the University of Texas, a psychologist there. Yep. He had the notion, as you probably know, Charlie, that uh, writing was therapeutic. And um, he wondered about that. So he gathered up some students and had them do some writing and he divided them into groups. Um, Three of the people, three groups were dealing with sort of inconsequential styles of writing but the fourth group was dealing with traumatic events in their lives and their emotional response to it. And something about that linguistic connection between trauma and the response um, brought up therapeutic kinds of effects that they had. What he noticed then is he followed these people, he just had them write three times in one week for 20 minutes each, and then they were done. And although they had a little disturbance of their psyche for having delved up some of these um, traumatic events that they were writing about, soon after that, that feeling went away. And what it was replaced with was a feeling of confidence and self-esteem and productivity, and they attended classes better. They had higher marks on the things that they were doing and curiously enough they didn't show up at the medical facility on campus quite as often as the other groups did and so he studied that in a secondary group of um, experiments where he measured t-cell response and he discovered that this form of writing enhanced the rapidity and the effectivity of t-cell response in the immune system which helped explained why they didn't show up at the medical doctor's office very often, Uh. having written this way. So without knowing that information until later in my life, and I've preached that information now everywhere, I was probably doing that by intuitively coming to this. Something about our intuition tells us that finding ways of dealing with what we're facing, it may not be just thinking about it, Because when we do that, we just recapitulate Mm -hmm. the old patterns that are not useful and don't get us out of trouble. But takes it out of the body, puts it on the page, you look at it coming back at you and you get something different from it, right? Absolutely. It looks different. It feels different. It's in a different voice. It's coming from a different place. So um, that's probably what I was doing. So I was doing that and writing stuff that was crap. And I thought, well, hey, if I'm going to write... Maybe I should know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so I went back to San Francisco State and I started taking classes with Bill Dickey and Francis Mays and ended up in the graduate school in creative writing in English and ended up with an MFA, <laughs> which I had not planned on getting in English and creative writing. And I was sad that I got that degree because that meant I had to stop studying <laughs> and stop taking classes because I was having the time of my life. And then I went to the Squaw Valley community of writers for about 13 years in the summertime oh. and studied with Galway Connell and Sharon Holes and Bob Hass. Yeah.
1: Great K. K. company. Yeah. Oh Keeping God. good company there. Yeah. Oh. Well, I want, to, I want to mention something, for folks. What was said about Penny Baker is very good information. He's one of the few people who's done concrete research about the therapeutic effects of writing. Yep. And so I forget his first name. But Penny. anyway... Jimmy Pennebaker, and that's the name, look it up, and you can believe what he says, he's been at it for a while, doing real live research with even, as you heard, control groups, real research, and documenting the positive effects of writing, uh, therapeutic positive effects of writing. Just yeah. want to repeat that, because that's doesn't come up very often in conversation.
2: It's very important <laughs> work, very yeah. important work. Absolutely. Helps explain, I think, you know, without, Knowing the reason why, and certainly without knowing the biochemistry, I think poets in history, a lot of them have come to writing poetry out of some personal need that mm-hmm. becomes fulfilled yeah. in the process, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Why do well, you know, do this?
1: Before we run out of time, you should read another poem or two. I just well, want to get that in there. Just...
2: From which kind of source do you want it to
1: come? Because I have three different ones now. Oh well, um, now your choice I like a happy guest
2: <laughs> All right so what I'm going to do then is um, maybe read this poem I'll just recite this poem
1: hmm.
2: and I'll read another one that goes alongside it um, sounds good there's a poem that I uh, wrote for my son. I was at a workshop at Squall Valley and I was running out of ideas. I had reached that crisis point in the middle of the week where um, I was completely tapped out and I was sitting on a balcony and I remembered um, an event that had happened to me a week ago where a son of mine brought a stone to me and asked a question. And I don't know, probably you've had this experience, Charlie, but there was a flash that happened in my brain and a poem rushed at me headlong and it came so fast and I knew it was gonna go away so fast that I had to really write it down quickly. It was coming I'm quite sure out of the unconscious we've been talking about that because I had not done any work on this poem at all and yet here it came. And uh, the poem was like this, I called it fragment at the beginning of something. Fragment at the beginning of something. My son brings me a stone and asks which star it fell from. He is serious and so I must be careful. Even though I know he will place it among those things that will leave him someday and he will go on gathering. For this is one of those moments that turns suddenly towards you, opening as it turns. As if for an instant we paused on the edge of a heartbeat and then pressed forward conscious of the fear that runs beside us and how lovely it is to be with each other in the long, resilient mornings. Mm. That form has not been edited and hasn't changed since it was written. And then I'm gonna write this, give you this quick one on a similar subject that's written in the Harvey Ellis voice. It's called Ancestors. My ancestors surround me like walls of a canyon quiet, stone hard, their ideas drift over me like breezes at sunset. We gather sticks and make settlements. What we do is only partly our own and partly continuation down through the chromosomes. My son, my baby sleeps behind me stirring in the night for the touch that lets him continue. He is arranging in his small form the furniture and windows of his home. It will be a lot like mine. It will be a lot like theirs.
1: I love the ending of that poem. You sent me that to. I read it ahead of time, and uh, yeah, I love. I love the ending of that poem.
2: Thank you.
1: It, and to me, it wraps it right up. So it's, it's not as it's not as wild, and uh, you know, in terms of my comprehension, at least. Or I was on, I was on the page with that one. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that pretty much uh, does it. It's been really great talking with you. Um, this time goes so quickly, and so I'm just going to say, folks, you're listening to poetry spoken here. I'm your host Charlie Rossiter, and we've just been talking with David Watts from San Francisco. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter mundley And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com/poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com/poetryspokenhere.